When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. Hey, what's up, everyone? Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast. Welcome back to the show. After a brief hiatus, things were a little crazy around my household last week as I, my wife and I brought home a beautiful, healthy baby boy from the hospital last week. He's home with us now, and we could not be more thankful and grateful to have him home healthy. Everybody's doing well. Things are certainly a little bit in disarray here at the Larson household as we make some adjustments uh, for the new new addition to our family, but it's been a phenomenal experience and it's only just begun. I know that many, hopefully many, 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 many memories and adventures to come with a, a beautiful, healthy baby boy. So I'm happy to be back on the Project Upland podcast. I hope you're happy to be listening. We've got an excellent show for you this week, which we will dive into very shortly. I'm just going to mention our regular supporters, Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. As always, they bring you each and every episode of the Project Upland podcast. Gumleaf Boots. Find them at gumleafusa.com, gumleafusa.com, and use promo code PU2018. PU 2018 to get free shipping on any order from Gumleaf USA. Phenomenal rubber boots. The ones I have are neoprene line, super comfortable. They're bulletproof out in the 
alder swamps and the lowlands and the grouse and woodcock covers that I hunt. Check them out. I think you will enjoy them. And Shotcam. Shotcam, the most the world's most powerful shotgun action camera. Check it out at shotcam.com. That's www.shotcam and that is cam K-A-M. Shotcam.com. Use promo code Project Upland. Promo code Project Upland, all one word. That will save you $75 on the order of a Shotcam from Shotcam.com. Today's episode, I interviewed an avid upland bird hunter from California. He goes by the name of Robert Jones. If you are a regular on some of the bird hunting groups on Facebook, Instagram, you may have seen his pictures. You might follow him, Robert Jones. He's a passionate, he's as passionate as they come. He, we talk about how he got into upland hunting. We talk about his dogs, his guns, his travels. He hunts a lot in California where he's from, which is kind of new to me. It was really cool to delve into some of the opportunities and the resources that are available to upland hunters in California. And funny enough, I was listening to an episode of the Hunting Dog Podcast with Ron Bame uh, earlier this week, and he mentioned to his guest at the time that he had a huge, the highest number of listeners from any state, I, I believe, were from California. So I haven't run those diagnostics on the Project Upland podcast. Maybe I'll check that out. But if we have listeners from California, similar to Ron's podcast, you will enjoy this episode because Robert is an avid Upland bird hunter in California, but he also ventures out. He likes to make trips somewhere, as many Upland hunters do, sense of adventure, go out, hunt a new bird, hunt a new habitat. Robert likes to do that. And we talk about some of his trips, including one that he made out to Minnesota this year to do some grouse and woodcock hunting. So without further ado, let's jump into today's interview and welcome to the Project Upland podcast, Robert Jones. All right, Robert Jones, welcome to the Project Upland podcast. How are you, man? I'm doing great, Nick. How are you? I'm doing very well, uh, except for the fact that you just got me all riled up because it's 25 degrees and we have a wind chill of probably about zero here. I'm actually, uh, I'm not getting, I'm not getting hit with too much snow. I know some people are getting a lot worse than I, but, but it's cold, it's windy, it sucks. And you just told me you spent the day fishing bass in 79 degrees. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> Unbelievable. So <laughs> you guys are, it's greening up out there. You got things blooming. I mean, it's, it's a spring fling. You guys have it all going on, don't you? Yep. It's, uh, it's looking pretty good in my area right now. We got a lot of rain in March, which is always good for our birds. Um, the grass is growing and wildflowers are blooming everywhere, which means they'll be producing a lot of bugs and hopefully a lot of chicks. Awesome. Good stuff. Uh, so I, I know you're in California uh yes. but the listeners listeners may or may not know that whereabouts are you in california i am just smack dab right in the center it's called madera california um the biggest town near me is fresno right in the central valley okay cool so dead center california it's a big state obviously ton of people there and i think i think it's often lost on people the outdoor opportunities that you have in California. So I'd be interested in, you know, kind of 
how you got started. You're obviously an avid, avid uh, upland bird hunter. I know you like to fish. Right. I'm sure. I'm sure you do other stuff. Was it was it early on? I mean, was it a family thing? How did you get into the outdoors? And is it is it a lot more common than maybe people's perception is? Yeah, I think it probably is a lot more common than you know what everyone thinks of. Um, I've been listening to the podcast, and there's kind of been two camps, people that grew up in a hunting family and people who didn't at all. And I guess I fall kind of right in the middle where um, my family did hunt uh, quite a bit right up about until the time that, you know, me and my brother came along and they, the, they just kind of stopped hunting. So I didn't grow up doing it, but it was always something that's talked about with my dad and my grandpa and stuff like that. So uh, when uh, my grandfather passed away, he left me his shotgun, and I decided that <clears throat> my brother and I should go out and um, try to go dove hunting. My brother had a Mossberg 500, and I had my grandpa's wingmaster that he gave me. And just luckily we have family who are farmers that let us mess around on their property. We went out that first day and I think it took me 10 boxes of shells to shoot a limited doves. (laughs) And that was it. That was the first time I'd ever shot a bird on the wing. And it was history after that. Uh, that would be September 1st, like 11 years ago. A month later, I had my pup, uh, puppy, little Springer Spaniel pup, and it was on. No way, that's cool. So yeah, I was I was gonna hit you with the hit you with the follow up question, but you answered it for me. It was it was love at first sight, essentially with with hunting and to get a dog a month later. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big leap, but you were obviously, you were all in at that point. Yeah, I was, um, the, the pheasant hunting in Cal in where I live in the Valley used to be spectacular. So I always, I, I grew up hearing all stories from my grandpa and my dad and just, they could go out pretty much anywhere west of town and, walk a canal bank and shoot a handful of roosters in, you know, an hour or two. And I was always interested in it, just never did it. And once I did, it was uh, all I could think about, really. I shot first limited doves that year, shot my first quail, and shot at a rooster. But didn't quite connect on that one that first year. (laughs) So, well, yeah, so- I just happened. I found the the puppy. I I'd actually been I'd lost my one of my dogs, and I was gonna replace the dog anyways. And just happened to stumble on a litter of Springer Spaniels in the paper that were from good hunting lines, and I kind of had this new passion flared up and I just went for it. 
Cool. So you kind of you kind of answered my my question again, and that I was going to ask you, you know, getting a dog again, it's considered a leap for for maybe some people. It sounds like you already you had already had dogs. Unfortunately, you had lost one. But right. But what I was going to kind of ask you is when you when you you know because you went dove hunting your first time you went hunting mm-hmm. you went dove hunting so then you know next step getting a springer spaniel what was what were you thinking at that point that you were going to get into i mean was it just kind of everything or did you have a specific thing in mind like i'm gonna i'm gonna hunt pheasants i'm gonna hunt quail what what kind of led led you to that decision yeah i um i actually didn't just just you know getting the springer wasn't just a a, a shot in the dark i did quite a bit of research okay. in that period and uh, kind of knew what I was looking for as far as a companion that I was going to have anyways, whether or not we hunted together. I knew I needed a dog from a hunting line if I wanted to try that. So um, I guess my intentions were just to, well, first off, we were dove hunting in a vineyard and Every time we knocked one down, it was like a 15-minute search to find a bird out there. <laughs> and so there, you know, if nothing else, I would have a good retrieving dog. That because um, opening day of dove season is a big deal here. Uh, everyone, I mean, people have huge groups of people out and barbecues and everything. So I kind of I knew already that dove season was a big deal, and I had so much fun that day. If not, you know, one day a year for sure, I'll be out, you know, dove hunting, and maybe I'll have a dog that can pick up a few birds and bring them back to me. Hmm. Yeah, Springer, Springer, uh, Springer will help you with that, and I'm sure, I'm sure. Uh... Is that a, is your Springer a he or she? Do you still have it? I mean, 11 years ago, I, I've seen some pictures of a Springer on Facebook that you have. Yeah, JP is, um, so he'll be, let's see. Yeah, he'll be uh, hunting his 10th season next year. And he's, he's a hard, he's a go-getter. He's a, probably not typical of most Springers. Um, he's kind of he's a little hard he's definitely hard-headed uh, <laughs> he's just he's kind of built like a pit bull he's just even now he's rock solid muscle and big head and just a go-getter he'll charge through the toughest stuff you can throw at him all day long well, that's cool. I mean, 10, 10, 10 seasons with a dog. I mean, that's, that's very fortunate. That's, that's lucky. I mean, it's good to hear, good to hear that you're still hunting with them. And, and obviously, well, not obviously, but I know that you also have a setter named Lady. She's a younger dog. Yep. So at some point, the, the decision came to bolster the kennel with a, with a second dog and, and you made the decision on a setter. So why don't you walk us through kind of the timing of that and, and that decision? Right. Right. Well, so as my passion or some of us, we might say a sickness for bird hunting kind of progressed, um, I ended up going to South Dakota and hunting. Um, I ended up going to Montana and hunting. 
you know, and some of those covers, like in South Dakota, my brother and I and the Spaniels, he has a couple too. Um, we kicked around for a day out in the grasslands looking for sharp tails and chickens and we saw plenty of them, but you know, you start to realize quick that the big country trying to follow uh flesh and dog through it well you know you can get it done it's a little tougher and just uh so i, I have a friend in kiss who owns a kennel of setters uh prairie drifter kennels okay and <clears throat> i've been sending him you know emails asking him about dogs and sending them pedigrees for litters that I saw and seeing if he could evaluate them for me. And he's awesome. He just helped me all along the way. Cool. And finally, one day he gives me a call and he says, um, there's a litter in Southern California. They're already on the ground. And he bred basically the bottom side of the dog's pedigree. So he knew all that. And he said, I think this is a dog that would suit what you're looking for. And there's one female available. And if you'd like it, I have the guy's number. And I already put in a good word for you. If you decide you want a dog and called him up, talked for a while and just sounded like a perfect fit for what I wanted. Um, lady's not, she's not like a, all age trial type dog. She's not a huge running dog, but she's not a boot polisher either. She's kind of in there in the middle. Sure. And as she gets older, she might even open up a little more, get a little more confidence, but she'll hunt. She'll hunt within a hundred yards and she'll hunt out 300 plus, you know, just depending on what we're doing. And she seems to have all the natural instinct, which is great because I'm not much of a dog trainer myself. I just <laughs> get them and kind of uh, drill basic obedience, the easier things I can do, and then just go hunt. You and me both, man. That's uh, that's the way that that's the way that I roll too. I mean, at least for now. Well, well, I've just started getting my feet wet in the whole dog dog world, but it's fun stuff. And right. you know, if you if you you know, you had a it's a great point you brought up your buddy with the kennel to have somebody like that. That's knowledgeable that you can trust lean on that's looking out for you. I mean, that's, that's invaluable for sure. That you've got to get in touch with the right people. Definitely. That's a big, I mean, that's awesome. If you can do that, reach out to someone that knows, you know, you kind of have an idea of what you want yep. and you know, I'd send him, the pedigrees of the litter I'm looking at and he's like, well, yeah, you, this dog would be great if you have a horse, you know, or, <laughs> or, or this dog would be great if you are planning, you know, if you want to, uh, strictly, I guess like a grouse dog, you know, I don't, you know, like a, a closer working dog, which yeah, he knows yeah. I, I'm out West. I need, you know, I do hunt a lot of, big stuff even here in california and uh 
he knew I didn't want a dog that would be over the next hill, but he knew I already had flushers, so I had that that handled already. So Yeah, there's a lot and, there's a lot of variables that go into it and, and like you said, you, you had the flushing dog, so you kinda I guess that leads to another good question. How do you how do you operate your dogs? Are they on the ground at the same time? Do you rotate them a little bit of both? What do you do? Um well, I've never hunt, I haven't hunted them together. Um, okay. just because JP's so dominant, I first off I wanted Lady to get a season under her belt of just running on her own, pointing yeah. birds, holding. Um Maybe I could, you know, work with, I didn't try, I wasn't worried about shooting birds this year. I just kind of went with it. Um, if there was something that I could try to correct while she was running, you know, JP's a handful. He's a, he's, when he's on the ground, you know, you got your work cut out for you. Just, <laughs> I mean, he listens great. He, he'll hunt in range all day, but I mean, He's just so fast and such a hard charger. He's just going, going, going. Yeah. You know, well, it's a so. totally different pace, right? I mean, from from just a flusher to a pointer, it's a it's really a it's really a different game. I haven't hunted much behind a flusher, but I've talked to a lot of people that have, and it's it's a different it, different deal. So it's kind of cool. You got a unique perspective having having yeah. both dogs. Yeah. So I haven't hunted them together. Um, I really, I probably JP's probably upset i hunted lady more than i hunted him this year uh <laughs> just because i mean those bird contacts when they're young are just so important you know absolutely that she just she got her miles in this year jp got plenty of miles himself and um yeah the difference is like um while we were fishing today we we're underneath this hill and it was a steep hill and you know you can just look at it and say i can't i've been hunting valley quail so long you could look at this hill and say oh there's a covey up in that draw up there there's a covey up underneath that oak scrub you can see over there but this hill is just very steep my brother i said you know we we're trying to follow the springers up that hill we'd be in trouble but with lady we let her run and we can kind of meander around at our own pace getting up this thing and not kill ourselves and sure. she'll just come she'll just cover a bunch of ground for us while we figure out how we're getting up the you know up to the top <laughs> yeah so, a little time to it's a little time to to calculate things out but i guess you got a yeah. little bit the birds have a little bit more time to calculate things out too as 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 happens with uh pointing dogs yeah, and um, I think I've heard a few guys mention it before, too. I think uh, Scott Johnson kind of mentioned it with a flushing dog. I'll let I'll let my dog, my Springer, I'll let him range probably a lot farther than common knowledge would dictate. Yeah. But <clears throat> depending on the conditions, you know, if there's a spot on a hill that's 70 yards above me um i can kind of direct him up there to go search it out and if there's something there these birds are so worried about getting away from 
the immediate danger that a lot of times they'll quarter right in front of you, you know, even though your dog flushed them out of range technically, here they come zipping down the hill quartering right in front of you. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. <laughs> and I, I remember the, the conversation with Scott back on the, the earlier episode and it was kind of like, yeah, you're sort of rolling the dice that, right. that the birds are going to come your way. And obviously you win some, you lose some, but, but that's yeah. no different than, that's no different than any dog on the ground. But in reality, the flushing dog is, it's probably not going to cover the physical miles that a pointing dog has. So if you, you let them, let them all, let them breathe a little bit and, yeah, you might get some bonus birds that that if you were really really tight on them, keeping them in close, you might never see those birds. So yeah, that's kind of cool. Exactly, and with a with a covey of quail, even if he does break them up and none of them present a shot, you watch, you know, you mark where some of the singles and groups went, and if you fill up to it, if it's a, if they go to a spot that you can manage, well, there you go. You know, you got. Like you said, we could, if I didn't let him cover that ground up there, we'd walk right on by, you know, never know they were there, but so. Yeah. And you've got, you've got, you've obviously got the, the advantage of, of visibility too. Whereas if you, if you flip that into the grouse woods, if your flushing dog sneaks out a little, you know, if Scott lets Watson get out of there a little bit and he flushes a grouse that you hear, but you don't see that's, that's different, but any grouse Definitely. hunter knows that that you're gonna flush uh, you're gonna flush a lot of grouse that you don't see and you just hear them. That's just that's just part of grouse hunting. Yeah, so that's you know, I think um, the terrain and the conditions kind of really dictate that. So, like uh, if we were hunting a side hill and the wind was blowing up from the bottom of the hill up, I'd want my dog working farther uphill from me you know so he could cover more of that wind as he worked but yeah you know the conditions are always going to dictate what you want your dog to do or what the dog learns to do on its own definitely in the grouse woods a lot of those tactics wouldn't work out quite the same yeah yeah it's i mean we could we could go on all day about variables but i think I think to sum it all up, it's adapting, adapting to the situations. That's what we want our dogs to do. We want our dogs to adapt to different cover types and different conditions. And we, we, as upland hunters, we also need to adapt to, you know, the birds we're hunting, the habitat we're hunting. That's right. Yep, definitely. So I know you have, you, you've traveled around a little bit and done some traveling wing shooting and I want to get into that, but I, I want to, uh, I don't think we've had a, we've had a Californian, upland hunter on here before just jogging my memory so i I don't want to leave california just yet how does how does how does your season shake out when does it start you know what do you start what do you start hunting and kind of walk us through that okay um so while it's not now that i'm into really into the bird hunting dove season's not my favorite thing but that september 1st we start dove hunting and then from there the second weekend of September, um, mountain quail in the Sierra Nevada range opens and it takes me from my house about 45 minutes to get into good mountain quail habitat. That's not bad uh, at all. As far as the bird hunting in California, 
I'd say I'd have to say that Mountain Quell would be our, you know, probably our claim to fame. Uh, I think we have the best hunting for Mountain Quell of anywhere in the United States or anywhere. Well, maybe Mexico might have some areas better, but uh, our limit's still 10. Uh, the season starts the second week in September and runs till the end of January. And there's just millions and millions of acres of forest land to hunt, you know. So the bird numbers aren't huge compared to some of the other birds we have. But, you know, in put it in perspective with other places you can hunt mountain quail, I think California has to be the, the top destination. Yeah, I think Jack, if he listens to this, a previous guest, he'll, he'll, he'll text me about it, I'm sure. But I don't remember exactly the bird he talked about, but he, he talked about hunting in California and maybe it was mountain quail. And he, I think he, if I remember correctly, he talked about huge coveys. I mean, does that sound right? Is that mountain quail or is that something else? That I, I remember, um, listening to that episode um uh, the huge coveys are are the valley quail and gambles ah, valley quail yep all right all right so mountain quail generally are they don't boom and bust quite as much as our valley quail populations they're more stable and a good covey of mountain mountain quail is 20 birds okay whereas you know a 20 bird valley quail covey would be hardly worth mentioning most years unless it's really bad so wow that's crazy yeah we i mean we see really if we couple a few good springs together i mean the valley quail populations just explode so so the name mountain quail and valley quail certainly implies a difference in in perhaps the habitat that the birds uh inhabit so can you kind of compare and contrast them a little bit yeah i guess um maybe same valley quail i'm not sure if that's a california thing or not i guess they're really california quail okay so um you we can i hunt places where you can get into mountain quail and valley quail on the same walk Gotcha. Or, or you can hunt mountain quail at 8,000 feet up in the mountains and California quail on the valley floor, which is around 200 feet elevation. Um, generally the mountain, mountain quail are in a conifer forest, a lot of shrub understory. Um, you know, meadows kind of interspersed in there, kind of grassy meadows. But you won't find mountain quail below 5,000 feet unless snow pushes them down. So below that, you get into below 5,000 feet is more of the valley quail, uh, California quail habitat. So between on the valley floor, it might be... um, ditch banks with lots of berry briars repairing river corridors you know cottonwoods and berry briars and stuff like that and then 
up in the hills, it's more oak savanna, kind of oak grasslands, uh, with dotted with chaparral brush, oak scrub, stuff like that. So there's definitely, there's definitely a difference in where you find them most of the time, but there are spots where they, they overlap too. Yeah. Awesome. So mountain quail, valley quail, California quail, what, uh, what else? Um, so mountain quail opens early and then all quail opens in October, third weekend of October. Everything's open. Um, that's Gamble's quail down in the desert, California quail in the rest of the state and Chucker opens at the same time also. Uh, Chucker too. Throw them into the mix. Yeah. Yeah, we don't, maybe not, uh, the best Chucker hunting around, but there, there are pockets where it's pretty good. And bonus here is, uh, a lot of Chucker country is pretty close to, if not the same as, uh, quail country you can find mountain quail sometimes with chucker and valley quail a lot of times with chucker even gambles quail sometimes with chucker so awesome so you got you got you got definitely definitely quite a few opportunities for for really a a mixed bag which is cool yeah yep we do um you just kind of got to do your homework see where things overlap and you know if you do that you can you can shoot i had a day where i should have had a mountain quail a handful of valley quail and a couple chucker i missed the covey rise of the mountain quail but uh (laughs) that was the only chance i had this year at that i missed the the covey rise i didn't want to chase them after it but yeah if you do your homework there's a good opportunities for mixed bag. Excellent. What's the, what's the public land situation like in it? What's the, what's your percentage of, of hunting public land? And you mentioned it once I get the, I get the sense that you're a, you're a big public land hunter. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, besides, besides the dove hunt, which we do on, you know, family property, um, I 99% I hunt on public land and I I think there's like don't quote me but there's something like 35 million acres of public land that's open to hunting here in California so it's not too hard to find a place to go you know yeah that's I mean I mean really that's that's wild because I think just, you know, general consensus of, of California, you, you have one perception of it, obviously that the, the, all the stuff that's already in the spotlight, but easy to forget how actually how big the state is. I mean, it's a huge state. And so you have, you have a ton of, you have a ton of people there yet you have all this land. And I mean, a lot of it's public, like that's, that's awesome that that's awesome that you have that resource 
what's what is hunting pressure like i mean you mentioned it's not hard to find spots so i mean do you do you run into other upland hunters out there i mean what's the hunting pressure like well here's the secret there we have all those people but they're really dense in two places in california that's the bay area and la yeah that's where 90 percent of the people live so the rest of the state is pretty rural and um you know i i might i might see you know quell and chucker hunting i might see two or three guys a year besides opening weekend opening weekend there are people out you know there's always is but besides that i might run into guys two or three times a year while i'm out there so um the the hot spots probably get pounded pretty good and birds get really jumpy and get hard to hunt so you kind of you could but there's so much land it's so easy to find places that are out of the way and um you know you can you can do some good hunting here you can you can really find some honey holes that probably no one besides you hunts at all especially if it's more than a few miles off off of a road yeah yeah i mean really that's 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 the problem that every upland hunter wants to have too many too many places to go you know even here in the in the great lake states you know it's no secret rough grouse and woodcock hunting is great but we have enough land to support the hunting pressure and to spread out. And I've, I certainly have spots where I'm sure I'm not the only person that knows about them, but it feels like that when you're out there. And, and that's really what it's about. You know, you want to feel like you want to feel like you're you're out sort of on your own. There's nobody else around. And, you know, I think that's right. that's what drives that's what drives me a lot. That's what drives a lot of upland hunters for sure. But I mean, that you know, you just can't help but feel fortunate and grateful that that you know, you've got opportunities like that from, from Minnesota out to California to, you know, across the U S it's not like that everywhere. And, and right. I guess, I guess that the point is to, to really, to point out, you know, there are places where, you know, this, this opportunity, this passion that a lot of us have, it's, it's available to people right. across, across the country. Yeah. It, it's huge having access to, to good land to hunt. I mean, without it, you know, it's just, uh, without it, it's too hard to do, you know, knocking on doors and all that. I mean, you can definitely get on some great stuff if you do, but, you know, you got a couple hours in the morning or a couple hours after work or something. If you have a shotgun and in the back of your truck already, just swing by and grab one of the dogs and drive 20 minutes away and you got a piece of land that you can go walk on till the sun goes down it's awesome yeah exactly right all right man so you at some point uh, along this journey you decided that that california wasn't big enough for you it wasn't <laughs> there wasn't yeah. enough opportunity there it wasn't big enough for you you decided i'm gonna i'm gonna start venturing out and doing some trips and I know you were you were in my state, my home state this year. You're in Minnesota, but 
delve in delve into sort of the traveling wing shooting aspect of what you've been up to yeah well uh, i guess the the itch to to leave was uh that the pheasant hunting here is really tough so i mean we scratched down my brother and i scratched down a handful of roosters a year but i mean we really get after it so the i guess the first thing that drove drove me to look outside the state was i wanted to go see something that i heard about you know fields where you see a hundred pheasants come out of one field things like that you know back in the 70s and 80s you could still see that here but now that's that's gone so the first trip was to south dakota to go see these flocks of pheasants everyone talks about you know and um i was lucky enough i met a friend um on an internet forum actually he owns a beautiful farm in south dakota he said if i'm ever out there we could go hunt at any time so the first trip was kind of planned around going to hunt his place and we did and we shot a limit in about a half an hour and me and my brother were just in awe you know (laughs) we probably we hunted for about a half hour or so and we probably saw a hundred birds but (laughs) the thing was is his place isn't even in the prime pheasant of the state yeah. You know, it's kind of, it was, I guess a lot of people that hunt South Dakota would, you know, the hunting was great, but you could see a lot more birds other places. So we hunted more in the traditional hot spots in South Dakota. And, uh, <clears throat> I'd always, I'd heard the stories and, you know, it's no lie. We hunted this one little slough. We met up with some other guys. We hunted a slough that was about probably a two-acre cattail slough in the corner of a cut cornfield. We had pushers and blockers in it. And I'm not kidding. In that two-acre slough, in one push, we saw somewhere between 500 and 700 birds come out of that. Wow. That little, that little, bitty cattail slew and so that was the first trip yeah and once we saw that it's like you know you know every year you know we gotta at least plan one trip go somewhere see somewhere new um hunt a new bird that's and so after that it became about to me, I want to see different places in the, in the country, and I want to hunt birds that I haven't hunted yet or don't have an opportunity to hunt in California. So, yeah, that, yeah, I think it's you know it's that sense of adventure. I think it fuels it fuels a lot of us for sure. And it was West West Larrabee had had sort of the same thing when I interviewed him on the podcast. I mean, he he was he loves to travel and see a new bird and. and explore the explore the habitat that they live in i mean that's right that is that that's 
there's a world of opportunity out there and it's cool so after right. south dakota after south dakota what was uh what was the next x on the map so the next year after that i have a uh buddy who lives in the high line in montana which is kind of the northeast corner of montana okay and uh <clears throat> so we went out there me and my dad went out there actually and uh, he let us crash on the couch and he was our guide and we went and hunted pheasants and sharptail in montana and had a great time and that he's that guy his name's patrick i don't know if he listens to the podcast but if he does patrick's the best hunting buddy anyone could ever hope to have he's just <laughs> The most easygoing guy there is, you know, whatever you want to do, he's game for it. If you want to hunt hard from dusk till dawn or the other way around, don't hunt at night. You know, he's with it. If you want to sleep in a little bit and, you know, maybe grab a bite to eat on the way out to the field and take it easy for a day, he's fine with that, too. And, uh. Patrick has two Labradors. They're great little dogs. They can really get after it out there hunting pheasants. And any chance I get to hunt with him, I take it up. He's just awesome. That's awesome. So did you did you have your dogs on that trip, Springer at that time, or Springer and Setter? Did you bring your dogs? <clears throat> yeah, I just had JP at the time. That was okay. So this is the, you know. This was Lady's first season, and I've pretty much only been doing one trip per year yeah. until now. The pup got me excited, and we made two trips this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll so, happen. Yeah. So after Montana, we went back to South Dakota one more time. Um, and then this year... Same spot? Same spot or different spot in South Dakota? Um, yeah, well... Whenever I go, I'll I plan plan one day to go have a day hunting with my friend down near Platte, South Dakota, and then we kind of just kick around uh, after that, just do our own thing. But we always go down towards Platte to hunt with Jim when we're there. Cool, and then. And then it was on to Minnesota this this fall. It was, um, I guess, what, dri- what drove me to to w- really want to go hunt grouse in the Northwoods was kind of, I guess, I kind of blame it on Lady the Setter Dog, you know, and <laughs> all the all the all the great literature that's about upland hunting is about hunting grouse with a setter so there's a lot of it isn't there yeah i had to go see what the fuss was about (laughs) and oh boy you know i i hear from everyone who talks about it and says that bird numbers were down and they may well have been i would know no different because it was my first time (laughs) hunting grouse but i had an absolute blast is best trip I've ever made so far. Wow, man. That's cool. And, and this was a solo trip, right? It was just you and the dogs. Yep. 
Yeah, that's yep, that's quite that's quite the haul to venture out venture out solo. That's uh, <laughs> that's that's cool. I want to I want to I want to dive into it a little bit. So you, I mean, how did you pick? Well, first of all, you know, I guess Minnesota is maybe the closest of the Great Lakes states, so maybe that right. factored into it. But how did you land on your destination of sort of the, you know, you were pretty much kind of Grand Rapids area of Minnesota? Right. Well, um, I guess I, you know, everyone saying, you know, oh, you can hunt in Idaho, you can hunt in Utah, you can hunt Nevada. Well, I hunt western type forests. That's, you know, where I spend a lot of my time hunting is western type forest. I wanted to see something new. I wanted to get. All right. We got Robert back on the line. We lost him there just as he was talking about why he wanted to hunt rough grouse in Minnesota. So you decided on rough grouse in Minnesota, Robert, because you wanted to you wanted to head up and see the the Northwoods, the Aspen Forest, the the spruce bogs of, of Minnesota. And, and you chose Grand Rapids, Minnesota, and you headed this way. Yep. I, I got out, you know, <clears throat> range, I looked up range maps, see, you know, where, how, where I needed to be to be in the bird territory. Yep. And, and, uh, kind of overlay that with maps of public land that you can access and see what's a reasonable spot that you can get to in your allotted time and hunt for enough days to make it worth it and hopefully kick up some birds. So that's kind of how I landed on that area. Do you have a kind of a sidebar here? Do you have a, do you have a preferred method of finding and locating public land when you're traveling? Um, <clears throat> I used to be a big time map guy. Yep. Um, I, I guess I would uh, kind of start on the internet, narrow it down, and then when I got somewhere near where I wanted to be, hit the first BLM or Forest Service uh, place and buy every map they had. Sure. But just uh, you don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> Get Onyx Maps on your phone and you're done. <laughs> I thought you might be an Onyx Maps user. It's, it certainly, yeah, makes, certainly makes it easier. Yes, it does. So, yeah. very cool. All right, so so you came to Minnesota. You were here in October because yes, I was I was out at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. I, like I don't know if I can't remember if we were just sort of piggybacking on each other or if I just missed you. Or I mean, I mean we were in kind of the same area um, in October, right. right? Yeah, yeah. You had just um, you were in Wisconsin. I think when I was up there. Yeah. And then I made my way out there. Okay. Right. So, oh, and I have to let everyone know that Nick, you are a huge help, you know, to me. Um, Just, you know, simple things like me sending you a picture and you saying looks good, but you know, (laughs) more higher stem density and, (laughs) and, you know, just, Oh, all right. Well, next place we, next hike we go on, we're going to go in some stem density, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yep, yep. get in some briars. Tried. I kind of had this idea, I guess, from reading too much uh, Sand County Almanac or something that 
I was just going to go walk around looking for red lanterns and find grouse. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, having someone again, having someone that you could bounce stuff off and get a little inside knowledge is priceless. Yeah. So definitely. you said, look for higher stem density. So we started to look for higher stem density and, and we started to find birds. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. I, I remember, I remember chatting with you a few times <clears throat> kind of when you were out and I was, I was actually funny enough. I remember I dropped you a couple pins, um, on, right. a, on a, on a map at some spots and, and you were like, I was just there yesterday. I'm yep. like, well, you're in, you're in the right spot, man. So, so yeah, that was, that was kind of fun, but it's, you know, it's crazy because I've been, I've been hunting grouse and woodcock up here a long time and there are days when I'm out there scratching my head thinking, what the heck am I doing? You know, and here you are, <laughs> you've never, you've never set foot in, in quote unquote, the North woods. And, right. and I mean, but, but you went about it the right way. You know, you, 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 like you said, you do the legwork, you do the preparation, talk to somebody, talk to somebody that that's from the area, you know, lean on, lean on those local, those local sources. And, and, you know, you had a blast. Right. Yeah. I, man, I had such a great time. Um, yeah, actually, I got into a huge flight of woodcock with the dogs. And, awesome. And you said, well, you're in this area. Try try here, you know, and you gave me a drop pin. And that drop pin was the exact spot where we had just found that huge flight of woodcock. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think as much as anything, you got to kind of chalk it up to beginner's luck just stumbling around kind of got an idea in your mind of what you should be hunting in and um, kind of get into that and then put a cup, put a dog on the ground and, and go follow him and you'll probably find some birds. Yeah, well, you've got you you've got a fine looking you've got a fine looking English setter. So I have to imagine that that's there were some times on that trip where the the whole picture came together. You know, the uh, the sun sunlight glistening down through the through the aspen stems and the the white flag of the setter up and you know stone stone solid on point. I mean that had that had to look pretty good to you. That was just exactly what I imagined. You know. It was- <laughs> perfect and uh i could definitely see why so much good literature involves that that picture you know but at the same time she was 10 months old when we were there so there was a lot of bumped birds (laughs) that huge flight of wood that huge flight of woodcock that was probably 50 or more birds um she nailed the first one perfectly just solid as could be and uh i dropped that bird for her and as she ran to it she flushed another woodcock kind of flushed i wouldn't say that was her fault because she was kind of going after the bird that i just dropped yep and that one that flushed kind of led her to another one (laughs) We had a good old time out there, let me tell you. That puppy. Oh man, she had a blast. But yeah, cool. she those were her uh you know, she'd only hunted 
mountain quail a handful of times before that. So she got some of her first really good points up there. Yeah, yeah, you get you get in you get in tight like that on a on a heavy heavy woodcock flight and and put a young dog in there and you're in for some fun. I mean, it's it's pretty much sensory <laughs> sensory overload, you know, for a young dog. And, right. But but hey, she 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 nailed the first one. You dropped it. I mean, you exactly. I, I know that you're you're the you're not the kind of a guy to get get up in arms about that. I mean, you got you got what you came for and and you got the memory and it was awesome. I mean, that's 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 what it's all about. That's right. It was perfect. Uh, just awesome you know her first point on a grouse <clears throat> we had been scuffling for a few days you know i was trying to we were seeing some birds but we weren't getting any shots and i wasn't going to shoot a bird that she didn't point and uh we had made this huge walk i mean she put on like 20 miles or something on this one walk and uh we're heading back to the truck but can't ever double back on stuff you've hunted while you're yeah. going back to the truck so we took a alternate route and i mean this puppy she just she had no quit she she wasn't gonna slow down she hunted all the way back and came around to the end and there she was, locked up on the edge of a road in a little patch of clover. And first grouse right came up and gave me a good quarter and shot. And I finally got on the board. And with the puppy first, too, which is not usually. Usually the old dog is the one yeah. that puts you on, you know, gets you on the scoreboard. Yeah. The old yep. faithful, but the puppy did it this time. And it was great. It was like uh, we had to we had to just sit there and take a break for a while and enjoy ourselves. You know, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, I I know that I know that you didn't you didn't you didn't drive all the way out to Minnesota to fill your truck up with birds, but I, no. I also know I also know that that you wanted to shoot a rough grouse. So you don't drive all that oh. way to not shoot a rough grouse. So what point, what point in the trip was it, you know, was it, were you sort of halfway done? Were you getting close to the end? I mean, I just wondering if there was any pressure to, to get that, that grouse. That was, well, you know, I didn't think there wasn't any pressure. Cause we'd been, we'd been seeing some birds. We were getting better every day. Okay. Okay. So the first day we actually hunted, we, Walked a ton, both dogs covered ground, saw one bird or heard one bird. Yep. Second day we hunted, covered a ton of ground, both dogs on the ground, um, hunted hard pretty much. Well, it was really hot, so we, I wouldn't say we hunted all day, but we put in as many hours as we could. Yep. Second day we saw three birds, so we we're getting better and. That was the third day I planned on hunting five or six days. So gotcha. the third day is when we put it all together. Awesome. So you felt like you earned it too. Yeah, definitely. We did. Uh, the dogs did. The dogs were out yeah. there giving it, giving it a hundred percent. The setter really surprised me because she's kind of a soft dog and 
we hadn't hunted much together yet. We, you know, we were pretty new as far as actually being hunting goes. And, uh, just like that she could go out and run 20 miles with no bird contacts, but that that didn't slow her down one bit, that she was still out searching just as hard as she was when she left the truck was just amazing to me. That, that was great. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. I, I, uh, I'd, I'd go out on a limb, uh, a very thick limb and say that, uh, you got a, you got a bird dog there for sure. <laughs> I hope so. I, I think, <laughs> I think, I think we're on to something. Um, yeah. yeah. So awesome. Well, you, uh, yeah, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned San County Almanac and, uh, and, and some other, you know, the literature that you've read. I've, it's the off season and, and, you know, pretty much daily, I find myself paging through something and I've been, been reading a, a new book by Mark Parman. He's a, he's a guy out of Wisconsin. It's his second grouse hunting book. I think it's called Among the Aspen. I really uh-huh. enjoy it. I've started hunting in Wisconsin, last few years so it's it's kind of hits home and it's it's a it's a great book but i mean do you have do you have some favorites uh in sort of the grouse universe because i know you read that but but stepping outside of that what have you come across if anything um outside of the grouse universe have you got some favorite books um yeah like western wings a lot of benno williams stuff is really good um but yeah uh oh trying to um uh the hunter's road that's a great book you know the guy the i can't think of the author's name but it's kind of about a uh season-long journey across coverts all over the united states with his dog and it's kind of a yeah uh, i'm blanking on the author's name but yeah that's a really good book Okay. The the Hunter's Road. Yeah. Uh, a Hunter's Road. A yep. Hunter's Road. All right, cool. Yep. And um yeah, just um I think uh, I'd have to say that a lot of the best stuff is about grouse hunting, but yeah. you know. Um Sand County Al- Almanac's my favorite book ever written. I keep a copy of it in my truck and I thumb through it any you know, whenever, whenever I'm out somewhere and we've got a little break in the action, got time to blow through a few pages. And, uh, yeah. so, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really, you know, it's a really wide appeal and obviously, and, and Aldo Leopold is just appreciation for everything natural and, you know, the outdoor world is, is it's evident in the writing and it's, you can soak it in every time for sure. Right. Right. Yep. Well, we're, we're about ready to wrap up, but I did want to, I did want to grill you a little bit more. Cause you mentioned earlier that, that, you know, your borderline, your upland bird hunting addiction is borderline sickness. And if it hasn't, <laughs> if it hasn't been diagnosed yet, um, once you start talking about side-by-side shotguns, that's when it becomes <laughs> officially a sickness. And I know you've reached that point. So what's oh. now you mentioned your, your grandfather, he, he passed down a wingmaster. What gauge was that? I never asked you. That's a, he bought that gun 
brand new 1953. It's a 12-gauge, 30-inch, full choke, pheasant gun. So uh, it's kind of my prized possession. Um, I take it out. I take it out once a year and walk with it. I think it's been a few years since I've actually killed a bird with it, but I do carry it every year at least once. Sure. And, uh, yeah, that's, you know, that's, she's in the safe, always nice and clean, as opposed to my my other guns. Maybe I abuse them a little bit. (laughs) But, yeah, so tell me about, tell me about the other guns. Where are you at now? So my main gun that I carry probably 95% of the time right now is a CZ ring neck 28 gauge. I've had that about seven, seven or eight seasons, maybe. And that uh, is an over under, right? No, it's a side by side. Oh, it is. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Yep. That's what I carry about 95% of the time. Um, just feels right. I shoot it really well. I'm kind of a an instinctual shooter, uh, yeah. snapshot. So I think it kind of lends itself to that style of shooting. <clears throat> and boy, I've been. Oh, I look at I look at side by sides on the internet probably as much as the next guy. Probably <laughs> too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's just. I think, I think by next season I will have something, you know, a, a upgrade from that. I don't know what it's going to be yet. Um, maybe maybe an old Fox or Parker, but I do have, you know, the non-tox issue here in California that's coming. So, right, kind right. of, yeah, you know, it's something to think about. Uh, yeah, it makes the makes the vintage route uh, trickier for you. Do you have what do you have? Because I've actually had sort of this non tox conversation sort of on the side a little bit with some with some friends. What what would be your if you really you know if you want to go vintage? What what are you going to do for non tox? Because you can't shoot steel out of vintage shotguns. No, uh, well, I I shoot bismuth anyways, so okay. I don't okay. shoot I don't shoot steel. Um, I probably I carry the 28 gauge and definitely on pheasants that makes that makes you choose your shots really well. So I mean I can here if I don't leave California, I can go through a whole pheasant season and only shoot 10 shells. Sure. So the bismuth, the bismuth there is no big deal. Yep. Well, I pro- well I go through some quite a bit of um, ammo but i think i can still justify using bismuth to hunt quail that's my that's my choice my shot load of choices a load of number six three quarters ounce of number six bismuth good deal all right, Robert. This was this was a lot of fun, man. I it's uh, it was a great conversation. Uh, I appreciate appreciate you joining us. And uh, is it still about seventy nine degrees out there? It's dropped a little bit. It's getting a little chilly. I think it's about seventy now. 
So. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate hey, before that. Before we wrap up. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I wanted to be the interviewer for, just for a second and ask oh. how the little one's doing. Oh, the little one is, is he's doing he's doing well. He uh he he's been he's been tiring me out a little bit. You know, I'm, uh, we've had some we've had some some longer nights of interrupted sleep, which is which is why you and I didn't record this thing last night. But uh, right. fortunately, we got her done. I mean, it's been he's been an absolute joy. Um, my wife is, my wife was amazing and, uh, he's, uh, he, he's really brightening up our days and, and Hartley, my setter, he seems to be taking a liking to him too. So I think, uh, I think awesome. we're off to a good start and I, I really, really hope that he'll be my, uh, he'll be my hunting buddy someday soon. Oh, he, that kid's going to need a setter dog in his own side by side pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's never, never too early to start looking, is it Robert? No, it's not. Hey, congratulations. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And uh, again, thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, as always, you know, you know, if you find yourself out this way and, you know, you haven't you've hunted Minnesota, but you haven't hunted Wisconsin yet. So that's right. If you come back out this way, you know who to call. That's right. I will. All right. Sounds good, man. Uh, Thanks again. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Yeah. Thank you, Nick. Have a good night. See you, buddy. Hey everybody, Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast. Just wanted to take a second to thank you again for listening to this episode of the show and remind you that, as always, we are brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Krause Camp. As always, we appreciate your feedback. Please don't hesitate to contact us via projectupland.com or by emailing me directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.